Welcome back to the Plowcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow Quarterly. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. Phil Clay will be on to talk about Afghanistan and the aftermath of our long sojourn there. Um, and then Tom Holland, um, who is not yet a friend of the pod, but hopefully will be a friend of the pod, is going to be on to talk about uh, Empire, his book Dominion, and the difference that Christianity has made on empires. Okay, so welcome Phil Clay. Phil is a friend of the pod, friend of the uh, community, and the author of Missionaries and Redeployment. Missionaries is his first novel. Redeployment is a series of short stories. Um, and he's also the host, along with, I believe, uh, Jake Siegel of Manifesto, a podcast. Manifesto has an exclamation point in it, which you should definitely listen to. I'm a big fan. And now let's get to it. Obviously, this was not your war. You were in Iraq. By the time that I finally joined, I took, uh, you know, I accepted my um, commission in 2005. It was already clear that the war in Iraq wasn't going very well. So, you know, I think that a lot of the veterans of my generation have a very different attitude toward these wars. You know, I was talking with with one friend, you know, he was like, he's, I mean, he was furious because he was working um, uh, visas, right? Trying to get people out during the evacuation of, of um, uh, in Kabul. And of course, you know, veterans groups and advocacy groups had been saying that the Biden administration needed to put more priority on evacuation, that this was going to be a disaster. They've been saying that for months. I'd had meetings with folks where they talked about the, the sort of cold shoulder they were getting from the Biden administration. And then there they were in this sort of terrible situation, desperately trying to get people out uh, in an incredibly chaotic environment. It was this sort of intensely emotional time as you know after after a long time of not paying attention suddenly people were horrified by what was going on in afghanistan although of course that you know that horror could have could have applied to to many other pieces of 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 the afghan war right uh, just happening with less sort of intensity and less television drama i went through uh, Northern Iraq in 2019, in December of 2019. Um, and, you know, it was very interesting because there were, you know, I went through Sinjar where there'd been genocide at Yazidis, right? And, you know, we went to a center for, for women who had been um, slaves under ISIS and, and then liberated. And, you know, there are these little Yazidi kids of theirs are singing Baby Shark. Um, and, you know, we're in the midst of a, a society that has been through an unbearable cataclysm. And then we went to Mosul uh, and we're going through the shattered old city, talking to people who had lived through the final days of the occupation. I met a man in a shattered house that the UN was rebuilding the UNDP was rebuilding and uh, you know he's talking about how he didn't send his kids to school because everything was violent even even math he said it was always you know bullet plus bullet equals two bullets right and towards the end he said it was so 
um, horrible. They had no food to eat. They ate cats, they ate rats. It was hard to get water. You'd go down to the river to get water, but soldiers would shoot at you from the other side. And he was just there with his kids feeling helpless because they're crying and there's nothing he can do for them. And at the same time, you're meeting with refugees from Syria who are furious that Trump pulled out some of the troops, right? Because Turkish-backed militias uh, came in in their wake and ethnically cleansed the area of Kurds. Um, and the governor of Mosul is like <laughs> talking about how American investors need to come and, and we need American support. Um, uh, I think he said it was a golden opportunity to invest in Mosul. You know, I didn't leave thinking that we need to entirely pull back into our borders and be isolationists, right? Mm. Um, and yet, you know, the, 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 the failures of the projects were so, so apparent. Um, so. How do you make that call? Like, how do you, if your response to the past 20 years is not isolationism, and if there's something deeply kind of um, problematic about the idea of nation building, especially as sort of, as you've described, it ends up half the time being nation smashing. Um, how, how do you think about, um, I guess, America's role as a kind of imperial power? Well, you know, it's also, it's just, we build, <laughs> we build castles in the air that we tell ourselves are real. I mean, that was, that's what was clear with the, um, you know, the, the, the government in Afghanistan, right? Um, that we had constructed a government that never had any real legitimacy, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. right? We wanted, we wanted to really remake these societies from the ground up, and you can never do that, right? In the speech where Biden celebrated, perhaps is the word, announced the end of the war, he also promised that we were going to continue killing people in Afghanistan. It's... Um, it's a little peculiar for somebody to say that a war is ending and, oh, by the way, we're going to keep killing people there. Um, that sounds like the war is continuing, it's just in a different form. Nation building might have been a failure. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, giving up on any concern with local political dynamics in countries where there are sort of threats to us uh, is the answer, and instead we just kill people, right? You know, counterterrorism, right? Drone strikes, special operations raids, uh, airstrikes. We kill people and then we leave. And, you know, there's, we don't have anybody on the ground to tell us, you know, does that make things better? What do you think it would have taken to get the American public shocked and horrified earlier? I think it's hard for people to get really invested in violence overseas, right? I mean, there's there's any number of reasons for it. Human beings were naturally most interested in our most immediate challenges, right? I mean, everybody is. Um, but beyond that, it it sort of disappeared as a political issue. So, you know, if you remember the Bush administration, the war in Iraq, uh, particularly, was a galvanizing political issue. And Barack Obama, who had criticized that war, sort of, you know, was the preferred candidate of the, you know, anti-war movement. Well, 
when he was elected, the anti-war movement sort of lost all of its juice. But but Obama was not an anti-war president, right? Mm-hmm. He, <laughs> you know, he he gave a defense of American power around the world in his Nobel acceptance speech. He immediately. Um, and his administration immediately began making legal arguments, ex- expanding the scope of the executive's authority to kill people anywhere and everywhere. You know, we're talking about as early as 2009. People are talking about a deterritorialized war, right? You know, he did end the, the troop presence in Iraq, right? Um, you know, that was, that was the war he had been against. But then when ISIS came back, he expanded it. Uh, he claimed that the war was over when in fact it wasn't I, I, it was this was a talking point of the administration in 2015 right um where uh, you know we were sending in special operators right who were sometimes getting into combat right but they were saying they're not boots on the ground technically by which they meant we're not putting sort of large conventional forces on the ground in iraq again but we were increasingly you know sending more people on the ground special operators, um, even though for some reason they didn't count as boots on the ground, you know, maybe they were riding around on hoverboards. Um, And, you know, we were doing a lot of airstrikes, right, and drone strikes. And in that year, Susan Rice, I I saw, was at a talk where, an event where Susan Rice was speaking to active duty military, you know, three, four-star generals were in the room people from the NSC, about a dozen severely injured troops, right? You know, guys missing, missing limbs, uh, their faces severely burned. And she said, you know, in the, in the Obama administration, one of our proudest accomplishments is ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And somebody went, right? Although nation building abroad does not seem to have worked that well, um, the war did quite a lot to us as a nation. And one of the things that it did was... Um, you know, you've kind of described this George W. Bush and, you know, Obama Democrat, you know, Obama style Democrat and probably Hillary Clinton style Democrat too. Um, consensus, you know, you could call it like a neoliberal, neoconservative consensus or something like that, um, that we were just going to we were just going to do war. That was going to be our thing. Um, and that one of the things that that did was it actually opened up a pretty strong, um, you know, there was obviously the traditional lefty anti-war movement, um, but there was also this uh, paleo-conservative movement that popped up. The American Conservative magazine started publishing in 2002, and one of its kind of like key issues, which is it has been fairly consistent, although not entirely consistent, about was opposing American adventurism abroad. Um, now, obviously, you can criticize them for the reasons that they would oppose that. Um, but that kind of um, sort of paleocon pacifism has had, or not pacifism, but like anti-imperialism has had a pretty profound effect, I think, on our political culture. And in, in a way, I don't think that you'd have Donald Trump without that. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say it's anti-imperialism. I, I think it it's, it, it really is imperialist uh, in some, in certainly in the Trumpist form, but um, uh, but willing to call the Iraq war a disaster. Before the election of Donald Trump, I was at a wedding, a buddy of mine from the Corps in, in rural Pennsylvania, right? And as we're driving in, you know, my wife's Colombian American, 
and uh, we pass like the 19th, you know, Trump digs coal sign. And she's like, am I going to be the only Hispanic person at this wedding? And I was like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's military wedding. Like it's going to be super diverse, which it was. But um, uh, I get there and I meet the other groomsmen and I text my wife. I'm like, you know, not only are you not the only Hispanic person at this wedding, you're not even going to be the only Colombian American there. And she's like, really? Uh, and I was like, yeah. And he already early voted for Trump. Now, <laughs> when I asked him why, uh, he gave a fairly straightforward answer. He's like, you and me were both Marines, right? He's like, we both know guys who've been killed in these wars. We both know guys who've been blown up in these wars. We both know guys, um, you know, who've lost limbs or whatever in this war, in these wars. And what do we have to show for it? Horror overseas, right? And who are the two candidates? Well, one's Donald Trump. Does he know much about the military? No. Did he say for like a hot second in 2003 that he was on like a radio show that he was for the war? Yeah. But he was almost immediately saying that we should declare victory and go home. He's sort of had this kind of isolationist streak for decades. And at the very least, I don't think he's going to expand the wars, right? And I think he's going to want to pull back. On the other side, who do we have? Hillary Clinton. She's a, she's a liberal hawk, right? Her lesson from Libya was that we should have been more involved. And, you know, she's got a general who wants to expand our footprint in Syria at the speaking at the DNC, right? Is she competent? Yes. She's going to competently expand America's wars overseas and get us into greater disasters that will cause untold suffering. So I'm going to vote for Trump. Or I already voted for Trump. You, you understand the deep distrust of, you know, foreign policy elites who even as, as the Afghan government was just like dissolving, right? We're saying, oh, it would have been sustainable if we just kept a couple of, of thousand troops in the field, you know, it would have been like Germany or Korea, you know, the least right. plausible analogy ever. Kabul as the new Stuttgart. Being encircled by Swabian reactionary rebels, forcing everybody to like shut down their beer halls and wear lederhosen. But then we, you know, deployed a few thousand troops and, and they all switched to making like, you know, house music instead. Like that didn't happen. That is a dumb analogy. Like, and people kept making it. Because it was all they had, you know? Mm -hmm. It was crazy. I mean, this is sort of an obvious thing to say, but one of the upshots, I think, of both what you've said and, and what you've written is that you can't make a polity from the outside in. You can influence it. I mean, I, I do very much believe in, in, in um, <laughs> you know, soft power, right? There's a lot that we can do to um, to influence other societies, we just can't dictate terms to them. We can't we can't reshape them in our image, right? That was always doomed to failure. I kind of feel like that might be a good place to stop, Phil. That was fantastic. Thank <laughs> um, you. This is perfect. This is really extremely perfect. Welcome to Tom Holland, uh, who we're very pleased to have on as a guest on uh, our podcast. He is himself a caster of pod. Um, 
with Dominic Sandbrook. He has a podcast called The Rest is History, of which I'm a big fan. He huge is fan. huge fan. <laughs> Shush. Oh, you're too kind. Um, he's the historian of various empires. He's the author of Rubicon, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic, Persian Fire, um, his history of the Great Greco-Persian Wars, and I think nine other books, if I'm right about that. Um, most recently, he's the author of Dominion. Uh, he's also an elite sportsman, an expert tweeter, <laughs> and not the star of the new Spider-Man movie. I... I knew you first as the author of Dominion, a book about the subtitle is, I think, the making of the West. Um, It's well, it 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 has different titles in Britain and America, which kind of highlights the cultural differences that the the Atlantic separates. So in 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 Britain, it's uh, the making of the Western mind, because my editor didn't want to have any hint of Christianity on the cover in case it would put off the book buying public. Whereas in America, it was, uh, what was it? I can't remember. It's something like, why Christianity is brilliant or something like that. And there's a, the Dali, the Dali crucifix. It's, it's how the Christian revolution changed the world is, is the American subtitle, which I think is actually a much more accurate description. Yeah. I mean, if somebody picked up that book hoping to not find any trace of Christianity, they would be sadly disappointed. <laughs> yes. I wanted to talk with you because... You're not a Christian. You're sort of interestingly Christian adjacent. Um, and I, I think what was striking to me about Dominion was that it sounded, it seemed as though you were writing, um, you know, it starts, you know, I think in around 500 BCE. Yeah, it's it starts in actually 479 BC, which is in the aftermath of the Persian invasion of Greece in 480. Um, and the, the reason that it starts there is that the Persia is is the first um, empire that effectively moralizes its own imperialism. So it sees the world in terms of of good and evil, um, of of light and darkness, and that obviously is is a huge influence on um, uh, on Christianity and and indeed Islam. And um, I, I th- it there's a kind of tendency in the West to see ourselves as the heirs of Greece and of Athens. But I think we're at least as much the heirs of Persia. That's fascinating. So, I mean, I've heard Zoroastrianism being spoken of as um, an influence on Christianity as well. Well, it's 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 very very complicated because it's not actually what we would call Zoroastrianism uh, under the first Persian Empire. I mean, it's it's a kind of proto Zoroastrianism. Um, but a lot of the themes that will become part of what are institutionalised several centuries later as Zoroastrianism are, are there. And there's no question that the, the Persian kings, when they invade Greece, which is this kind of mountainous backwater full of, of um, terrorists, basically, that the, the, the Persians are going in there to basically to sort it out, to bring order and stability and peace there as they see it. Uh, and of course, it all goes disastrously wrong. And we're recording this in the aftermath of of the um, the NATO withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, and I think that um, you know, there's there's a sense in which um, America has been riffing on that very very ancient Persian theme. And the idea that simply because America is a democracy and because Athens was a democracy, therefore there's a kind of a straight line of descent from the two is very much complicated by the fact that actually it's Persia that provides the model for Christian and Islamic imperialism. 
Yeah, we would like to see ourselves as kind of, uh, you know, pre-Rubicon Rome or as something like Athens, but... Uh, yeah, very, very, very different. There's such a distinctive flavor to the book. It reminds me a little bit of Hilaire Belloc's um, history writing, but you end up writing about Christianity um, and eventually or Judaism first, obviously, and then Christianity. But you're very clearly, it seems to me, right? Like if you were a character in this book, you would not be one of the Jews or one of the Christians. You are sort of speaking as um, one of the... Well, no, I'm, I'm not sure that's true because actually I am a character in the book. Right at the end, uh, I, I, I include myself as a character. And, well, I, I described my mother, but particularly my godmother, who was, uh, for me, a kind of um, a, a, a great inspiration, um, a, a model, really, of, uh, of how to live. Uh, and she was a very de devout Christian. Um, and I, I, I suppose the final chapter is an acknowledgement that, you know, this, it, it's ridiculous to imagine that I can stand outside because the, the central claim of the book is that that um, the West is 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 just completely Christian, that you don't have to go to church or believe in God to be shaped by it so profoundly as in effect to be Christian. So to that extent, I would say I'm absolutely Christian because I, I, I think it's impossible to be in the West and, and not to be shaped and influenced by it. I mean, the question of whether I think that, you know, Jesus rose from the dead is, is a different matter. Um, I, I would like to. <laughs> and there are times, you know, if I go to maybe at Christmas or Easter, if, I, or if I'm in a place where, you know, where those thin places that, that people talk about where um, the divine seems very close that I that, that I can believe it and there are other times where it just seems complete nonsense to me but but whether I'm in my skeptical or in my my believing uh, mode of thought uh, I, I never doubt that in my core assumptions I'm Christian through and through and that's really what the, the argument of the book is about. Can you talk about how that kind of um, how those core assumptions differ from say the core assumptions of uh, Let's talk about Rome, for example. So obviously Rome features heavily in the book. Um, what is the impact of Christianity on the Roman mind, I guess, or, or on the Roman Empire? Well, I, I mean, let's look at the core symbol of Christianity, which is the cross. And the cross had an important significance in the Roman imagination as well as an emblem of um, their, their power and their authority to inflict torture on those who opposed them. Um, and those who oppose them might be rebels in the provinces or, or they might be slaves. Uh, and there's a sense in which the distinction between those two categories become blurred because um, to suffer on the cross for the Romans is the worst possible death. Um, and it's the most humiliating. It's the most agonizing. Um, it's not just that you, you suffer for hours, perhaps days, but that you do it in public. And so people can gather and watch as birds peck out your eyes or attack your genitals. Uh, you know, they can laugh at you as you, you struggle to, to continue breathing. Um, and the humiliating character of, of the death is precisely what then serves to affirm the dignity of Rome as an imperial power and the master as someone who can inflict this suffering on the slave. 
Um, <clears throat> Christianity obviously radically, radically reconfigures that. Um, and the idea that um, the cross uh, can serve as an emblem of the triumph of the slave over the master or the, uh, the victim over the victimizer uh, or indeed, the, you know, the provincial over the imperialist is so destabilizing that it, it's hard to put into words just how profound a, a cultural upheaval it represents. You've talked about, I mean, obviously the the title of the book is Dominion, the Lordship. Um, what is the, I guess a way to ask this would be, It sound, it seems to me throughout the book that you're kind of talking about the West or the aspects of the West that are influenced by Christianity, which you might call like the remnants of Christendom or like the, the uh, unshakable sort of structural and um, deep, deep-seated assumptions of Christendom are a kind of empire of the mind um, that although they're, they're not a political empire, there is a kind of like I, I, almost an invisible empire, which I would say sort of corresponds to something like what Christians think of as the kingdom of God that's been kind of permeating um, the, through the West over the course of, you know, Christianity's rise. Is that, is, is that sort of what you were getting at with that title and, and through the book? Well, the, the title points, you know, the whole of Christianity is paradox. You know, at its heart, it's rooted in paradox that God can become man. That, um, that death can become life. Everything about it is paradoxical. But in historical terms, the paradox is that um, a, a faith that puts at its heart, you know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, of which, you know, the story of Exodus, the, of the slaves being the favourites of God, or, of course, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection that in, um, you know, the, 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 the cross becomes the emblem of triumph over worldly empire um that that this faith in itself ends up becoming the most globally hegemonic way of explaining what humanity is here for um and and there is obviously an incredible tension there between the the power that christianity has has come to exert and the kind of nagging sense that actually it's it, it's in powerlessness that that God's favourites are to be found, uh, and that has been an issue really right from the very beginning. So if you, you know, Christianity claims that its message is for the entire world. So famously, that's articulated by Paul in his letter to Galatians. Um, that, you know, that, that there is no Jew or Greek, there is no man or woman, there is no slave or free in Christ. Um, as Paul himself discovers, there are those who reject this idea that all cultural difference, for instance, can be dissolved into uh, a single identity uh, because the Jews, most Jews don't <laughs> accept Paul's message. So right from the very beginning, Paul and his followers have to wrestle with the issue of well, what you know, how do, what do you do with people who 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 reject this message of of uh, a kind of universal Christian identity? And I think it's um, you know perhaps for that reason, it's Christianity's relationship with the Jews that that 
is the most notorious example of what can rise from the insistence of Christians that there is a kind of universal identity. Because for those who reject it, what does that mean? It doesn't always mean good things. So whether it's Jews or whether it's the people who come to be described by Christians as pagans, and the idea of a pagan is an entirely Christian one, um, you know, or, or Muslims in due course, or, um, it, you know, as various kind of notions within Christianity evolve as to what being Christian should be, you know, the idea of heretics, Catholics, Protestants, whatever. Um, so, so that remains a kind of enduring tension. And I think that um, we see in Western countries at the moment, perhaps most, you know, most um, convulsively, actually, in the United States, a, a, an anxiety about Christian, Christianity's power that exists entirely within a Christian context. So there's an awful lot of what's been going on, I think, since the 60s which I would see as a kind of convulsion of an, you know, parallel to the Reformation. Uh, the 60s is, is up there with the, uh, you know, with the 1520s as a period where deeply Christian assumptions get recalibrated. Um, but Christianity has been rejected by increasing numbers of people within American society, but for deeply Christian reasons. It's rejected because it's identified with power and with authority, with the man. Um, but, it, 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 you know, it's rejected for, for, for reasons that make no sense outside of a, a cultural Christian matrix. We actually have an article uh, in the issue of Plough that this podcast is associated with um, by the former uh, president of uh, one of the premier leadership bodies of the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant uh, denomination in this country, uh, Russell Moore is his name, about why young people are leaving the church. And uh, there was a recent poll, polling over the last five years show, you know, plummeting uh, identification with white Protestantism by younger cohorts. Um, and he, he's, of course, has been much hand-wringing in Christian circles about why that is the case, why this plummeting levels of identification, both as Christians and as church-going Christians. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd be curious, you, you, you've, you've in a way answered that, but w what, what would you say to a church leader in, in the United States? Why, um, why are young people leaving Christianity? Are, are we on the way to becoming the next Sweden in 30 years? Well, I don't think they are leaving Christianity. I, th I think they're leaving Christianity in the way that, that Protestants left the Roman Church in, in the 1520s. Uh, I, th I think that they are, you know, a new Christian identity is emerging and evolving. And obviously, um, for those who, uh, in a sense, are defending the status quo, that's an incredibly traumatic and, and, and unsettling experience. But I mean, I would say that, that, that it's deeply rooted. So... I mean, it seems to me that the as an outsider, that the, the current convulsions in the United States are, are deeply rooted in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And in fact, in the need for that civil rights movement, because, um, you know, that was an impeccably Christian movement. It's the Reverend Martin Luther King, because what King was doing was essentially summoning white Protestants and indeed, um, you know, white white. Christians generally to a recognition of biblical truth that 
all human beings are created equally in the image of God. Uh, you know, that if there is no Jew or Greek, then there's certainly no black or white. Um, and it was the fact that, you know, it was it was because white Christians could recognise the truth of that, the impact of that, that the civil rights movement proved as successful, successful as it did. But what happened then in the 60s was that various other groups of people within American society um, that felt themselves to be disadvantaged drew on that campaign. So uh, women, so the feminist movement, it was, you know, kickstarted by this, um, gay rights. Uh, and the problem for Christians, of course, was that um, whereas the argument that, you know, that there's no black or white absolutely goes with the grain of Christian thinking over 2000 years, the notion that, um, you know, there's no man or woman in Christ, but there should be no man or woman kind of in society generally was more challenging because um, that hadn't always been a part of, of Orthodox Christian teaching. And of course, gay rights was even more problematic. Um, and so essentially what happened over the 70s, 80s into the 90s was that um, a kind of no man's land began to open up between doctrinally professing Christians and groups like gay rights campaigners, feminists, um, uh, I guess people on the kind of liberal left, who came to see themselves as essentially emancipating themselves from, from, from Christianity. Um, and so the more hostile professing Christians came, became to, to liberals, the more liberals came to see themselves as not being Christian and vice versa. And so, you know, the trenches deepened, the barbed wire became more and more entangled, the no man's land became harder and harder to traverse. And that's basically the situation that, that you know, the United States is in at the moment. But it seems to me that essentially the culture wars are arguments over theology where one side isn't recognising the fact that actually it's a theological argument because the fundamentals of anti-racism, of gay rights, of trans rights, of feminism are all rooted in the Christian assumption that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The idea that, you know, it's 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 better to be the victim than the victimizer. Uh, and, you know, Nietzsche, the great, the great, great atheist enemy of Christianity who attacks, it, you know, for things that, you know, he, he hates the idea of victimhood, that the idea that victimhood should be privileged. He despises that. I mean, he would absolutely recognise it as being Christian. And I think, you know, I, I talked about how when you're crucified, um, the suffering, you know, you die because you can't breathe. And I would say that George Floyd absolutely fits into the Christ-shaped gap that, you know, this new evolving theology uh, needs. Um, it needs martyrs. It needs uh, people who who embody fundamental Christian principles, but who aren't necessarily Christian or indeed, you know, actually, you know, it's great if they're not Christian because then it, they, they, they can serve as kind of more potent figures to rally the, the cause. So I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I would, um, I mean, I, I, if I were uh, an American um, evangelical, I would probably focus on, on what unites rather than what divides. It's interesting to, to go into this question of powerlessness as, as at the heart of the gospel and identification with the powerless as, as, as central to Christianity. There have been movements 
you know, as you know better than we, um, over the, the course of Christianity, that sought to recover that, that sought to get back to that original nonviolent ethic of the first few uh, dec- generations of Christianity. Um, this magazine actually is published by an Anabaptist community, uh, for instance. Um, and although we publish ecumenical voices, in fact, our last podcast episode we had on uh, Pater Edmund Waldstein, a well-known Catholic integralist, who loves the idea of Christendom uh, and its restoration, uh, there is this strain of, of within Christianity, sort of a, a centuries-long fight, uh, so to speak, between this impulse to nonviolence towards suffer, you know, taking on suffering, a willingness to bear suffering, and, and then the desire for domination that goes with the universalist claims of Christianity. And I just wonder, I'd, I'd be, be interested uh, to hear your thoughts on this whole question of sort of violence and nonviolence within Christianity. And what role does that play in what we're talking well, about? Clearly, the, 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 non, the, the, the tradition of nonviolence is very, very significant. Um, you know, Jesus allows himself to be arrested. He tells Peter to put up his sword. Um, he he goes to his death rather than summon angels to defend him. Um, and you can see in say in in um, early medieval writings the, where newly converted Germanic peoples are trying to make sense of this, just how odd it is. Uh, so they'll cast you know the 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 apostles as a, a kind of band of warriors with Christ as as the you know the the warlord. And, and the radicalism of the fact that this warlord refuses to fight again and again is what obsesses them. You know, they, they completely recognise how odd this is. But against that, uh, you know, it's important to recognise that there is also scope if you want to fight for, for, for doing that. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of violence. Say just you know, the book of Revelation is, is an astonishingly violent text. And the fact that it's an anti-imperial text I mean, I would say the greatest anti-imperial text ever written, the text that underlies the great tradition of anti-imperialism within Western thought, um, doesn't mean that it's not incredibly violent. It's absolutely kind of soused in the blood of, <laughs> you know, of the damned. A lot, a lot uh, of France Fernand in there, the wretched of the earth rising up. Absolutely. Well, you know, and it's there in Anabaptism, isn't it? Because Anabaptists become famously pa- pacifist, but Munster is the absolute archetype of what happens when you take That's the book of Revelation too seriously. <laughs> so, you know... But we, so the, we, 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 we quickly disclaimed those Munsterites. Uh, <laughs> sure. But, 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 you know, it was... Uh, the, the scope was there, wasn't it? So, I mean, and that's part of what makes Christianity so, I think, culturally, emotionally, spiritually satisfying to human beings. I mean, if you're looking at it purely from a kind of, you know, a, a Darwinian sense, why has it worked? Why has it become uh, the most successful way of explaining what humans are about that's ever existed? It's that kind of tension. There's something for everyone there, but it's channeled in kind of very, very distinctive ways. So I would say that... that, that um, the relationship of violence and non-violence within the Christian tradition has always been a kind of very one that, that generates sparks, put it that way. But I think there's there's another perspective which kind of ties in with with what you were saying about um, you know Catholic yearning for 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 Christendom as was, which I think has been highlighted by the recent meeting that's taken place in Hungary between the Pope and Viktor Orban, 
um, because they, those two men em- embody two traditions, again, that are very, very ancient and both deeply Christian. So the Pope embodies the kind of the universalist strain within Christianity, the, the absolute, you know, all human beings are created equal, that, that, um, that cultural difference will ultimately be dissolved um, within Christ. Um, and it's that message that, that of course, is, is um, the, you know, the, that underlies the evangelism that has seen Christianity brought to, you know, continents that would have been unimaginable to the, uh, to, to the apostles, the first apostles. Um, against that, Victor Orban is equally an embodiment of a, a Christian tradition that sees Christianity as something that needs to be defended from its enemies. So, um, you know, he's the leader of a country that was occupied by the Ottomans for many centuries um, and therefore has a, a kind of attitude towards uh, particularly Muslim migrants that is explicitly hostile. He sees Islam as a threat to Christianity, as Christians have seen Islam as a threat for, you know, most of most of their existence. Um, and so essentially what's at stake is an argument, I think, about, um, well, really about the, I suppose, about the Good Samaritan. Um, you know, would the, would the Good Samaritan the obligation laid on the, you know, the, 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 the Christ story of the Good Samaritan lays on Christians is to care for those who may not even be Christian. That's how it's traditionally been interpreted. But I suppose what Victor, or- the, the, the Victor Orban tradition is, yes, but what what if the Good Samaritan, you know, what if the person that you've res- that you've rescued turns out to be a Viking or turns out to be, uh, you know, an, an Ottoman or a Janissary or whatever? What are you going to do then? Um, and you know it's 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 ridiculous to pretend that um the desire to defend christianity or indeed to spread christianity at the point of a sword is not a part of christian history because it clearly is one of the things that like we're seeing a lot of in the us i think possibly somewhat less in the uk is the emergence of what you might call the post christian right so you know there was a lot of talk about the christian right i can i did not grow up christian i can remember hearing about the christian right as this very scary thing when i was growing up um, we're now kind of seeing a little bit of what might be called a post-Christian right, which is reaching back, it, it thinks at least, um, through Nietzsche to some of the kind of earlier, uh, I don't know. Bronze Age. Bronze Age, yeah, to the Bronze Age. Uh, as an actual historian of, um, among other ages, the Bronze Age, uh, can you talk about what the, like, what what are the, without Christian assumptions, without the Christian assumptions that um, especially those on the progressive left may not even recognize that they have, what would, you know, a non-Christian Western mind look like? Well, I think the key figure here is Nietzsche. And, And Nietzsche's great insight is that most of the movements within Western history that had sought to extirpate Christian were themselves incredibly Christian. Say the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. Um, well, you know, the Russian Revolution hadn't happened when Nietzsche died, but communism. Um, that <clears throat> that if you're saying, you know, again to reiterate, the first shall be last, and that um, those who are oppressed have value by virtue of being oppressed, 
which is kind of fundamental to the French Revolution and to um, and to uh, the communist tradition. Um, if you're saying that um, you know idols should be overthrown and superstition should be banished because by doing that you will bring people into the light, so people who walk in darkness will be brought into light. Then again, you are just it's just another reincarnation of of Christian assumptions. And so the Enlightenment as well is just another turning of that great kind of Christian wheel. It's just a, um, you know, you're not you're not escaping from Christian assumptions. And so both the Enlightenment and the the, the kind of the, the socialist and the communist traditions within the West are are just, you know, further iterations of, of Christianity. And that's that's Nietzsche's kind of great insight, because he emotionally and intellectually and spiritually identifies with the world that preceded Christianity. He identifies with the kind of the warrior values of Greece and of Rome, and he mourns their loss. He regrets the fact that, you know, the blonde beast has been tamed and tonsured and locked up in a monastery. Um, he, he, he wants to see, you know, God properly dead, because in the famous parable that he tells, and, you know, and it's interesting, even Nietzsche can't escape it because he's telling a parable as Christ did. I mean, it's, you know, even Nietzsche can't escape it. Um, you know, the, the corpse of God is so massive that it continues to cast shadows on the cave. Um, he, but he says that the time will come where, you know, the, the, the corpse of God will go and, and, and a new age will be born. And, the, and this new age will be drenched in blood and spectacles of great terror and wonder. And of course, that is what comes to pass, because we know, as Nietzsche didn't, what will follow in the decades that, that you know, come after his death. And in a sense, um, fascism is, is the first attempt to repudiate Christianity, not, not, just, um, not just institutionally, but doctrinally, because what... what you know, let's say the two great revolutionary principles that underpin Christianity, and they both have precedent. You know, they both have precedents in things that exist before Christianity, but no framework of belief uh, fuses them quite so potently as Christianity. Uh, one is absolutely the sense that to 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 be weak, to suffer, dignifies you, and imposes an obligation on the strong to care for you, and the other is that. Um, all human beings have a fundamental dignity and that there is no Jew or Greek. And fascism repudiates these and fascism fuses the antique. So the very name fascism comes from the fasces, which are the, the, the bundles of rods and axes that the, the bodyguards of first the, the consuls and then the emperors um, carry over their shoulders. Um, and it fuses that kind of identification with with the the the, the ancient, with the pre-Christian world of of uh, Greece and Rome, um, with the very modern. So Mussolini is obsessed with planes and cars and tanks, um, and in the form of Nazism, in particular, this attempt to repudiate those core Christian values attains its kind of horrific apotheosis. So obviously Hitler doesn't think that the strong owe a duty of care to the weak. He thinks that they have a responsibility to crush the weak. You know, he casts the weak as the equivalent of microbes who have to be eliminated. He's, you know, he doesn't, he's not doing what he does because he's 
evil. He's doing it because he thinks what he's doing is right. It's a new way of seeing the world. It's a new way of calibrating values. And likewise, he sees it as his responsibility to affirm and protect and enhance the purity of what he sees as his race. So, of course, he sees Jews and Greeks as being different. And indeed, he 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 sees, you know, the, the, the question that haunts him, he sees the Jews, he sees the Romans and the Greeks as being Aryan, of Aryan stock. And so the question he has to ask is, well, what, what went wrong? Why did they fall? And the answer is, is that they get corrupted by the, the rootless cosmopolitanism of, of the Jew Paul, as he calls him. And so if his Reich is going to last for a thousand years, the Nazis have to do what the Romans failed to do, which is to get rid of the Jews. So the most, you know, I talked about the history of Christianity being a history of, of paradoxes. That's the most, perhaps the most hideous paradox of all, that the Jews are targeted for genocide because Hitler blames them for Christianity. Even as, of course, he's drawing on the, the tropes of anti-Semitism that, that, that 2,000 years of Christianity have given him. Now, Nazism doesn't prevail. You know, the thousand-year Reich doesn't last for a thousand years. And um, the Second World War is, is, is won by people who do it in the name of Christian civilization. But I think that... Um, the, the, the effect of this is, in a sense, certainly in Europe, uh, in, in the, the decades that follow the end of the Second World War, to make institutional Christianity almost unnecessary, because what it's done is to create a new myth in which Hitler is the devil and the Nazis are the demons and Auschwitz is hell. And in a sense, that replaces the old supernatural structures you know of, of of heaven and hell of angels and demons that had previously existed and in a sense they're kind of more vivid everyone's you know everyone's obsessed by nazis everyone's obsessed by the second world war you know it's kind of enduring obsession and whereas previously people might say well what would jesus do and do it now we say what would hitler do and do the opposite but of course the it remains a deeply Christian way of seeing the world because we cast the Nazis as the essence, the quintessence of evil because they offended the core Christian assumptions that have governed, you know, the way that the West interprets and understands the world for, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years. Um, so in a sense, if there are pe if there are people who are harking back to, to, to the Bronze Age, I mean, that is that is that that is a kind of properly that's a proper repudiation of Christianity. That's not a kind of repudiation of Christianity in the way that the you know, that that the progressive radicals are doing it. That's a kind of Nietzschean repudiation. And it's one that is casting off that, you know, that's 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 scorning the idea that um, the history of fascism shows where that leads. It's interesting to sort of think about um, Hitler as the sort of Satan figure of, you know, our contemporary culture, because there's not really a corresponding Christ figure, or at least there's not a single corresponding Christ figure. Like, you don't say, what would Churchill do? Because especially, you know, to a lot of modern progressives, you know, Churchill is not actually someone to um, look up to. Um, so there's this kind of free-floating Christ mantle um, that it seems to me, although you know, Hitler can stay as the devil. There's a kind of free floating. Well, I, th I think it's, 
I think it's been vested in people who are classed as as victims. I'm I'm interested in the way that Dominion's been uh, kind of received. Uh, it's I think it's I've I've seen it called a revisionist history, and obviously there's this. Um, I love the fact that the, the British publisher kind of tried to cloak it a bit. What what's been the strangest response, or what's been like? Obviously, we're I I know like a ton of Christians who absolutely love the book for incredibly obvious reasons. What what's been the um response among non-christians like have you felt them puzzled has it what's there's been a fair degree of hostility from some because in a sense i'm a kind of apostate i suppose i I remember i so i wrote a book called in the shadow of the sword which was about um the emergence of islam uh, as an imperial project that emerged from the imperial traditions of late antiquity so the roman and sasanian traditions and to explain it historically essentially required me to question quite a lot about the 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 life of muhammad and the origins of the quran that 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 obviously is very very important to muslims i mean it kind of lies at the heart of 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 what muslims believe and i remember giving a talk where a, a muslim in the audience said you know why have you done this why are you questioning what we hold sacred you would never do this to yourself and i felt that the force of that because actually at the point I, at that point i was already questioning what i took to be sacred which was basically that i was a liberal that there were such things as human rights that they were uncomplicated that i was a product of the enlightenment that um i owed more to greece and rome than i did to you know dreary old church fathers and monks and all that kind of dreadful crew who'd ruined everything as was you know the the kind of gibbonian stereotype i i was already doubting that but th- that question kind of sh- i i felt the force of it and i thought well i'm going to question my values and beliefs and mythology if you like in exactly the same way so so really dominion is the fruit of that and so i can see why there are there are liberals who have a kind of particular emotional investment in the end idea of the enlightenment as you know, an emancipation from the dark ages and from barbarism and superstition and all that kind of thing. I mean, I can see why they would resent that. But I have to say that, I, you know, nobody has objected to this in quite the way that <laughs> people objected to the book on Islam. Um, and I think that probably reflects the fact that, that for most people, the stakes are, are less high. Tom, thank you so much uh, for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.